Some say that it's an orientation, that people are born this way. Others that it's against nature and a choice. That's the same-sex question, the most divisive issue of our day and a clash of cultures. Well, let's start with this uh, this morning. Uh, Jesus said, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. How many people have heard that before? (laughs) If you've read your Bible, you have. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, The person um, who he was in conversation at the time, when that conversation all came up, uh, was was so struck by that, love your neighbor by yourself. He, He was looking for a way actually to justify himself, to give himself an out with regard to which people he would actually have to love. And so he asked a follow-up question. He said, um, who's my neighbor? Remember this? Who's my neighbor? He was in the question. He's looking for a reason to not love certain people that were in his life. Someone that he, in his own value system, would deem unworthy of love. Now, I suppose in this, in this message, we're asking the same question in a different way. What should I do if someone in my family, in my friend circle, just someone I know, what should I do if they are same-sex attracted or have identified as gay? Really, what we're asking is, do I need to love them? And if I do, I'm going to need to know how I'm supposed to love them. And we know already that it isn't really an if. Because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not really an if. Loving is not actually an option for those who are the followers of Christ. Because those who are same-sex attracted, those who are gay, are indeed our neighbor. And it's not conditional on whether they have faith in Christ or not. It's not. We'll see that in a few moments. And we're coming to the end of this four-part series, When Cultures Clash, The Same-Sex Question. And before we go, really what we have to determine, the kind of final point of this question that we're asking is how we are to love. We need to figure that out. And so um, probably a really good idea if we pray and uh, then we'll get, get working on this together. So let's bow our heads uh, together. Uh, Father, we're grateful again uh, for this time. Uh, together and we're grateful for your love for us the grace uh, the patience the mercy the compassion the help so much more that flow from that love father we know that in your love uh, we find the example and so give us all today as we uh, sit here under the teaching your word give us all insight into what you would have us believe and how you would have us live Fathers, we spend this time together, make it be profitable for us as a community, as a church, and as individuals. Father, we pray that you would do something extraordinary, something supernatural in this place today. 
And we ask that you do this by the power of your Holy Spirit in our midst. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, what if someone I love is same-sex attracted? And really, we could kind of expand that out, not just same-sex attracted, but identifying as uh, gay. And I'm using that word as I have throughout the series in the broadest sense of what that word is and all the different iterations of that. And so what if someone I love is same-sex attracted? Uh, First of all, we must uh, create a place. This is a great little phrase. We're going to use it a lot here. A place of redemptive grace. And that uh, phrase actually comes from Tim Keller as he was uh, talking a little bit about this issue. Uh, Grace, of course, we've defined this many times. Let's talk about that second word first. Uh, The word grace we've defined many times as being undeserved and unearned favor from God. Okay, It's undeserved. Uh, There's nothing in me that merits it. And there's nothing that I can do, no amount of good works or moral living that can earn it. It's undeserved and it's unearned. That's the very definition of what a grace uh, really is. And grace covers many aspects of our life. I see grace in my marriage. I see grace in my parenting. Uh, There's grace in my work relationships and in my friendships. Uh, I have so much grace, so much that's unearned and undeserved that gets poured out into my life. But most importantly, we see grace in the move that happens Uh, From sinner to saint. How many saints in the crowd today? Raise your hand if you're a saint. You're unwilling to, but if you're in Jesus, you're a saint. All right? So the move from saint to sinner is laden with the grace of God. It doesn't even happen apart from the grace of God. That's redemption. Jesus paying the price, redeeming us putting his life in place of our life, the shed blood of Christ on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. And therefore we are redeemed and redeemed by grace. And this is the thread. This is the message that binds us together in uncommon community. Redemptive grace could be a model that we put over uncommon community as we seek to build that here. It's redemptive grace from God to us that allows us to be the sons and daughters of God, but also redemptive grace that we pour out to one another. Having received it from God, I want to be a dispenser of this redemptive grace to those around me. And so this is so critical to our discussion when someone comes saying, I I feel like I'm same-sex attracted. I I feel like I don't have feelings for the opposite sex and I don't know what to do with this. Or they come to us and say, I've already worked it out and I believe I am gay. That's my identity. Because if they come to us and they say, I'm beginning to believe, I'm embracing Jesus, I'm understanding the truth of all of this, and I want to live in righteousness and holiness. And I would just refer you back to the second message to know exactly what I mean by all of that. But I want to follow Christ in obedience. Really, the end game of that, as we've already discussed, is not necessarily that the person is going to become heterosexual. The end game is that they will live in purity before the Lord. And so for someone who might never, they might say, I'm same-sex attracted, I identify as gay, I don't have any feelings for the opposite sex, but I want to live faithful to Jesus. Therefore, as many have done, I'm going to choose to live 
a celibate life. I'm going to be single. I'm going to be chaste. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to engage in any sexual activity whatsoever. Now, if they, if they choose to do that, then we understand that we must provide a community that's going to walk with them throughout that journey because that's such a difficult decision to make. And beyond the decision, such a difficult way to live. We've already dealt with most of that. It's challenging, but I want to say this because some would dispute it. It's a challenging journey, but it's not an impossible journey. Some want to say that that's, that's too hard, that you shouldn't ask people to live that way. But it's not even close to the most difficult thing we could ask of them. It's, it's, it's difficult, but not impossible. Corey Widmer has a great discussion on this in an article that we've added to our resource page. And he writes this, uh, for this change to happen... Churches have to be actual communities, not just buildings people enter enter once a week. Jesus calls individuals into a new family that lives out the joys and demands of the gospel together. Bearing burdens and cheering one another along the Calvary road. And Jesus even promises that those who take up the hard demands of following him will be given a new community to support the consequences of the losses they endure. We're not hiding anything here. The demands of following Jesus can be difficult for many, not just people who are same-sex attracted. Jesus himself said, um, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. The point is there's sacrifices to be made because the cross is a symbol of sacrifice. It's a symbol that I'm giving something up for Jesus and many who's given up his life. And for many who will have to make a decision to follow Christ or will make a decision to follow Christ, it means that something's going to be left behind. So we understand the demands. But, but I like what Widmer said here. That God is going to give him a new community to support the consequences, the losses that they're going to endure. Check out the way... Jesus said it. He said to them, this is Luke 18, 29 and 30. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Can I just pause there for a second and say, does that not seem like a high demand? Does that not seem like the highest demand next to giving your actual life as a martyr? I might have to forfeit my family. I'm, I'm going to leave my house. I'm going to leave all my support structures where I live, everything. I'm, I'm leaving all of that behind to follow Jesus. And that's what people were doing in those early days when Jesus was on earth is they were literally abandoning, walking away from in order to follow Jesus and give their life to the son of God. Some people here, that demand is placed on them that when you follow Jesus, your family shuns you and you have to leave that behind. And we would all agree that cost seems ridiculously high and many are not willing to pay it. Praise God when you come to Christ and your family comes to Christ or your family embraces it and they still love you and accept you. But that isn't true for everyone. But then he says this who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. 
In other words, whatever you give up, God's going to pour it out on you in other ways, in awesome ways, beyond anything you could have ever imagined. It's an amazing assurance that no matter the sacrifice you make to follow Jesus and to obey his word, God's going to compensate you in an extraordinary way in this life and in the next. Widmer's point is that uncommon community is just a huge part of this. That part of the blessing of following Jesus, part of what fills in the emptiness when you leave the other stuff behind, is this. It's the church. It's, it's small groups. It's relationships that you have with people who love you and care for you. That's what we're trying to build here in Uncommon Community. In fact, in the new year, we're going to, uh, we're going to do a study with all of our small groups. Say, this is what we're founded on. This is what we're about as a family here at Harvest. And it's based on the one another's. You know, the one another commands from the scriptures. And we're going to do a study on that. But, but here it is. Here it is. And we're going to throw up on the screen here. Um, love one another. Just love one another. Forgive one another. Are, are things going to happen between us here? Okay. Are things going to happen? Somebody in your small group, you're not going to be particularly fond of them on some particular week. It's going to happen. Okay, someone's going to upset you. Somebody's going to say something you don't like, but short accounts. We're going to ask forgiveness. We're even going to forgive when people don't ask for forgiveness. We're going to be forgiving people. We're going to serve one another. You guys are so good at this. Uh, we're going to submit to one another. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to be devoted to one another. Loyalty. Have you locked down these six one another's? This place is going to be an awesome place where the presence of God's spirit is felt and experienced by all. And this is exactly what Paul was talking about, in fact, in Galatians chapter 6. And this is what we're setting up, this, this atmosphere of uncommon community of redemptive grace. He writes this, brothers, if, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of of gentleness, not, not with a hammer blow. It does not say hammer blow there. There are no translations being held by anyone here who says hammer blow. Correct? No hammer blow. Spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. I'm going to come back to that phrase. Bear one another's burdens. I feel the weight of this. I'm carrying this with you. Remember, the context here is about someone caught in transgression and needing to be restored. I'm going to bear that sin burden with you as best I can. I'm going to bear the burden of you getting relieved from that and coming out of that. There are some sin issues and the same sex attraction thing is massive in this. There are some sin issues that we, frankly, we just need someone else's help to overcome. That's what this verse is about. Bear one another's burdens and notice, so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we should all want our church to be known as the place where a person with same-sex attraction or who is gay can openly share where they are at, what they're struggling with. And, and when they do that, they're just going to feel, I'm welcomed and I'm loved. Okay? Y'all love it when I say it at the end of every service. You are loved. You like that? 
Fact is, you wouldn't even go home until I did say it. You're so Pavlov's dogs about that, right? It's like, he didn't say it. I don't think we can go yet. True? But it's got to be more than words. You are loved. You're loved by me. You're loved by God. You're loved by the people around you. It means all of that when we say it. It's very mutual. And so we want to get on this. And um, it's like what Ron, Ron Sider said here. Imagine the impact if evangelical churches, can I just change that? Imagine the impact if our church, if Harvest Bible Chapel, were widely known to be the best place in the world to find love, support, and full affirmation of gifts if one is a, ready for this? An openly, unabashedly gay, celibate Christian. Okay? Are you okay with that? Are you okay? A gay, celibate Christian. They need to be able to find a place right here. I'm just trying to work it out. This is my temptation. This is my area of sin. This is what I've acknowledged. I want to be open about that, but I want to be part of the church family here. I want Harvest to be that place that this church will be different, that this place will be, to use the Old Testament phrasing, this will be the city of refuge that that anyone can run to and find hope, can find redemption, can find grace. So very practically, then, what does that look like? We're going to build that place, first of all, by listening more than lecturing. We're really great at lecturing. Okay, after all, we get together every week, and you come to this church, and you get 50 minutes of me lecturing every week. We're pros at this. And, and, but we need to listen more than lecturing. I mean, we've established already that that what we're talking about here, we tend to look at it, the church tends to look at it as a behavioral issue. That, that if you engage in same-sex activity, that, that that's a behavior. It's something you should stop that. It's something you do. Whereas those in the gay community, those who identify, they see it more as not a behavioral issue, but a, do you remember? It's an identity issue. Now listen, if you're not listening and all you're doing is lecturing, If you're not hearing the heart of those who are struggling with this, you're never going to find that out. You're never going to know that it sinks to the very core of who they are. This is why, listen, I'm going to say a phrase right now that so many people have used and attached to this particular topic, this question, when they say, um, um, hate the sin, but, okay, it would be great if we just never said that again. And, And the reason is not that it's necessarily wrong. We ought to hate sin. Amen. We ought to hate sin and we ought to love the sinner. True. Okay. That's what we're talking about. It ought to be that, but it misses the point. That phrase comes out of the notion that this is a behavioral thing. Whereas those who are struggling with it are saying it's an identity thing. You don't understand the sin and the sinner, what you're calling the sin and the sinner. Those things are so inextricably linked together. That you don't realize how hurtful it is when you use that phrase with respect to my life. It's an illustration of why you got to listen and not just lecture. Because if we don't hear it, you forfeit, you forfeit any opportunity to have anyone who's struggling with it come in 
and talk and be helped. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says this, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. The purpose in a man's heart, I thought about that phrase, and, and that has to speak to all the deep issues, the things that we think about. And, and core to who we are is our identity, who we are. And so deep inside of me, the purposes of my heart, I'm thinking deeply about all of these things, and I want people to know that part of who I am. The purpose, is, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. See, only the person who, you, you're only going to understand if you listen. You'll only listen if you stop talking long enough to listen. And when you do that, you're going to draw it out. And you're going to be able to find out the pain, the hurt that's behind it, the backstory. And that's when we're going to be able to really be the church that God wants us to be. Now check this out. I, I don't want you to turn to the passage. You all know the story of the, of the uh, woman at the well. John chapter 4, it's found there, one, 1 through 30. And Jesus has this lengthy conversation with a woman at this well. It's remarkable in a way that we don't fully grasp in our culture because it's not unusual. I've already had conversations with several women here this morning as I came into church, and I'm sure you have as well. If you're a man, you might have talked to to several other women as you came in. And that's not unusual for us in our culture, but in in the first century Jewish culture, it was very unusual and and pretty wrong for a man to talk to a woman who wasn't a relative of his. And so so in the culture, here's Jesus. He's talking to, Jesus is talking to a woman. And that's kind of challenging the disciples so much so that when they come back from the little errand that he sends them on, they come back and they, the, the verse says that they marveled that he was speaking to a woman. Now, they were already beside themselves, little geography lesson, okay? Uh, south uh, is down and north is up and Israel kind of runs up alongside the, um, the, the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean, okay? And uh, Judah is down here. And Samaria is here, and going north is Galilee. Now, now Jesus was wanting to get, um, he was in Galilee, and he was wanting to get back down to Jerusalem at this point. And so um, the way that they would do that very often is they would uh, travel further east to the other side of the Jordan River, go down the east side of the Jordan, and then pop back up into Judah so that they could avoid what was in the middle, Samaria. He didn't like the Samaritans, okay? It would be like if you're in Barrie, which is a great place, and you want to get to Huntsville, okay? But you don't want to go through Aurelia, okay? Sorry to all the Aurelia people, but this just works for everybody, all right? So you don't want to go through Aurelia. So what you do is you travel south and you go around the bottom of the lake, okay? And go up the east side of Lake Simcoe and pop up on the other end so you don't have to go through Aurelia, okay? Get it? Have you got it? I'm just waiting to see if any Aurelia people leave right now because I've totally offended them. But you get the picture. That's exactly. But Jesus decides to go through Samaria. So he's talking to a woman, but he's talking to what kind of woman? She's a woman from Samaria. Now she's also out getting water in the middle of the day. Now all the women went to get water early in the day. She's there alone because we find out also she has a pretty bad reputation. She's not great with men. And uh, been divorced a few times, living common law currently. 
And so she's a mess. So she doesn't want to hang out with the other women. So she's a woman. She's a Samaritan. And she's, she's uh, got a bad rep. And Jesus has what is the longest recorded conversation in the gospel with her. And in the conversation, if you watch it, they talk about a number of different things. But he listens to her. I mean, he lets her talk. He has an actual conversation with this, this woman. And, and the Pharisees, the people who are the religious types, they're kind of on this three strikes, you're out, Jesus. You definitely should not be for three very compelling reasons. You should not be talking to this woman. Now, all I have to say about that is if Jesus can take the time to talk to such a woman, we have to get over ourselves. We do. With regard to the same sex question. Church, we have to get over the pharisaical nonsense that has characterized the evangelical church. And we have to simply talk. There's a... Um, there's a lead pastor in our fellowship of churches um, who was in the gay lifestyle for some time. And uh, he found victory over that. He confessed all of that to the Lord. And um, he's now a pastor. Uh, married with children. God's restored him in a pretty miraculous way. And he shared some things with me about all of this. And when I think about the whole idea of, of us um, lecturing less, listening more and even the kind of words that come out of our mouths when they do come out, the kinds of things that are driving people away who are struggling with this. Okay, he identified some things like, like the joking around about gay people. There's no place for that. If you're a follower of Jesus and you want to reflect all the best of who Jesus is, Jesus totally respected this woman, this Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman with bad reputation. He's respected her to have a conversation with her. Didn't joke around about her situation. Now, you don't know who's struggling. You drop a little funny turn of phrase or change the intonation in your voice to sound like someone who you think is gay. You don't know if someone in your circle of conversation or someone in your small group or, listen, someone in your family is struggling with that and you make the joke and you drive them further away from ever feeling safe about sharing. He also said we need to stop with the stop being statisticians. And all the percentages about gay influence and how it's enveloping our society and the small percentage of those who actually identify as gay and how they're influencing everything and rolling out all the statistics is not helping. All the political crusades, he went on to say, are not helpful. And we talked a little bit about that earlier in the series. I won't review all of that. But we as the followers of Jesus Christ are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Those are the values we want to uphold. James 1.19 was an obvious verse that I should have had loaded up here for this series, but we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Amen? See, if we don't, if we don't listen more and lecture less, 
I love these words from Mark Yarhouse. This is part of a video that we've posted on the resource page. Mark said this, Mark Yarhouse said this, I think we end up talking to ourselves and people who are dealing with this issue in our own pews will leave the church and people on the outside will just wonder why we think we're relevant to them. Listen, listen, gotta listen. And then beyond, beyond listening, we need to actually speak out against the haters. Speak out against uh, the haters. Now, I, I referenced the story of the Good Samaritan. I wish we had more time to unpack it in our study of the Gospel of Luke, which we're going to get back to in a few weeks' time. I think we'll get to Luke chapter 10 sometime in 2015, okay? I think it's going to be in October uh, when we'll get there, the Lord willing. Um, but really, essentially, the story of the Good Samaritan, which, is, by the way, is where that whole who is my neighbor question we did off the top, that's where it comes from. And really, the whole thing is Jesus shutting down the haters. That's what it's about. I don't want to love these people. I want to hate them. Aren't I supposed to hate them? That's what the whole conversation with Jesus is about. And he shuts all of that down. And he's saying to the religious types, he's saying to the pious, practicing people, you can't say that you love God and then not love your neighbor, not love your Samaritan neighbor. Not love your gay neighbor. Not love the person that you have no time for and can say nothing about. Not, not, not love your hurting neighbor. See, there's simply no room for the followers of Jesus Christ to be so harsh or so angry with those who are same-sex attracted or those who would identify as gay. Now, I understand by saying this, I understand the risk that's involved in it. Because with everything I've already said about making this a welcoming place for those who are struggling, that, that you can actually be transparent and vulnerable about what your, what your struggles are, where you're at in your, your life, what your identity is. By saying all of that, it's very risky. But the risk is only with one group of people. The risk is with these pious, pharisaical, religious people who think they have a corner on holiness. I'm willing to take the risk with them, honestly. I think that's the biggest risk with this series. It is not, the biggest risk isn't that someone who's gay is going to stand up and, and challenge what I'm saying, even though I'm still saying that to choose a gay, gay sexual activity is sin. I've still said that. I don't think that's where the biggest risk is. I, I don't think the biggest risk is that people outside the church are going to hate us. Not even really that concerned about that. I think the biggest risk in doing this series in our church is that some people who might be part of our church, I don't think we have any of these people, but some who are part of this church just think that I've softened somehow. That somehow being a friend of sinners is a problem. Yet, yet that's what Jesus was, right? I mean, that's the goal, right? Be like Jesus. So I'm willing to take the risk. All right. Listening more than lecturing, uh, speaking out against the haters. Um, and by practicing biblical sexuality, very simply. First Thessalonians four, three, there's a whole passage there that you can read three through eight. 
1 Thessalonians. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The first thing he mentions, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that phrase, sexual immorality, is a broad sweeping term to refer to all, listen now, all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Okay? If you are in a heterosexual marriage, that's where sex happens. I mean, it just seems crazy in 21st century Canada, US, UK, whatever, to say that, isn't it? We are so out of step with the world around us by saying that sex should only happen inside heterosexual marriage. I get it, and I'm willing to live with that. And I think you are too. So if that's the context in which sex should happen, the only context then, that's what Paul's telling us here, that we have to abstain from everything outside of that. Okay? So uh, what that means then, because we're so obsessed, we have been so obsessed with the same sex question, and, and that tends to stir us up so much If we're going to really have a place of redemptive grace, we actually need to hold to the highest standard of biblical sexuality in all facets of biblical sexuality. In other words, if I'm going to be incensed about the fact that that, um, gays are portrayed on television so prominently now, if, if that's going to make me mad, then I should be equally mad that adultery, that people play fast and loose with marriage, period, heterosexual or homosexual. I'd be mad about that. I, I need to be mad about the fact that, that every sitcom plays fast and loose with premarital sex. Forget the gay question. Heterosexual premarital sex. But we watch the shows. And we laugh at the jokes. And so, and so it's, not, it's pretty disingenuous then to be so upset when, when there's some depiction of gay intimacy on television. But we, we were laughing just a few moments ago about adultery or premarital sex. I could probably just give the the invitation now and y'all would come and repent, right? I mean, I just think we're all guilty of this. You see the point there. We have to practice biblical sexuality, the highest standards of that in every aspect of our lives. And that's helping to create this place of redemptive grace, that I'm not elevating the same sex a question above the premarital question, the premarital sex question, or the extramarital sex question. I mean, let's just talk about all of those. Let's say that we're going to raise the standard in all of that. Let's just say to our young people, let's just make sure that those who are single in high school and college understand you're not supposed to have sex, period. Get married, have sex. Okay? highest standard. And then fourth, this characteristic of this place of redemptive grace by clearing the way to that place. We want to make it very clear that you can get in here and you can be part of this. 
And so we want to remove, basically we want to remove all the obstacles to that. You see, our task is, Jude 20 to 23, our task is to have mercy on those who doubt. Mercy. We're to save others by snatching them out of the fire. There's, there is a sense of, I'm going to go, I'm, there's a proactiveness to this. That I'm going to show mercy with fear. And I'm going to hate even the garment stained by flesh. No one's asking anyone to soft pedal on the actual sin or the consequences of it. We ought to ache in our, in our hearts over this. We ought to be in agony over the effects of sin in the world. Again, not just over the same sex question, but marriages that dissolve because of adultery and lives that are ruined because of premarital sex. I mean, whatever it is, we ought to agonize over the garment stained by the flesh. But we are rescuers pointing the way to Jesus Christ, pointing the way to a safe place. And to do that, we have to be firm in what we know to be true from God's word. Jude is a book about contending for the faith. You know what you believe, contend for it, hold on to it firmly. And so again, we're not equivocating at all. We're not wavering at all in what we believe. If we waver in our firm conviction, listen to this now, if we waver in our firm conviction about the things we've been studying, we send a signal to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction that there's no help here. If we don't know what we believe, then we can't send up the beacon and say, this is what we believe, and this is a place you can come for help. In John 13, I'm always struck by this this account of John 13, 36 through 38. This is right after Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples. So this, this amazing act of, of sacrifice and service. And he washes their feet and then he goes over to Peter. And it's pretty obvious at this point that Jesus is going to be arrested and he's going to be taken away, that things are going to go terribly wrong for them. And Peter says, I'm, I'm going to be with you, Jesus. I'm going to stand with you the whole time. And Jesus says to him, in fact, Peter... You're not. You're not. Before morning comes, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Why, why did he tell him that? I mean, is that, is that just like some sick, cruel little parting shot that Jesus gives to Peter? I mean, he's trying, trying to be brave. He, he's, he's doing the best he can. At least he's saying something. The other disciples are just sitting over there. I don't know what they're doing. Peter's at least saying, hey, Jesus, I'm going to be with you. He's, he, he's got all the earnestness. He's got all the, and Jesus like just shoots him down. And I really I just go like, is, is this a cruel act by Jesus? And did he need to know that he was going to deny him? Why is Jesus doing this? Fast forward for a minute to John 21, and, and in John 21, this is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and but before the ascension of Jesus, and Jesus is having this conversation with Peter just before he goes, and remember he asked him three times, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? There's obviously got to be a parallel back to the three denials, and Jesus is just tenderly and compassionately in this one-on-one conversation, he's restoring Peter. 
And, and that's why he told him he was going to deny him. That's why the conversation in John 13 happened. Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter knew that there was a way back. So Jesus shares with him this really hard truth. You're going to deny me three times. Jesus essentially is saying to him, I I know what you're going to do. It's going to hurt me when you do it. And it's going to hurt you too. But I need you to know something. I know all about it. And I still love you. And I'll be there for you when you come back. I mean, it was harsh, but it was tender. The wounds of a friend are faithful. And that's what Jesus was doing for Peter. So much love in what he did. And those with same-sex attraction need the church. They need their parents. They need their friends. They need their brothers and their sisters. They need their loved ones to hold the line. Listen to me now. They need us to hold the line on what we know to be true from the scriptures. They need us to hold firm to what we believe in God's design so that when the time comes, they can find their way back. It's a difficult thing to say to a loved one. I can't agree with how you're living your life. I can't. But I love you so much. And though what you're doing is hurting me, and I believe with all my heart it's hurting you, I want you to know I love you, and the light is on. And you can come back anytime. We have to hold to the highest standard of God's holiness. We have to. In all areas of our lives. While at the same time demonstrating the highest standards of his love. We can and we must do both. Let that be our church, amen? We want to create that place. And I hope that's helpful to all of us as we seek to do that. And then as we're building that, we keep in mind we need that place too. But there's no one here, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, who doesn't also need this place. Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So when you're studying the Bible, ask questions of the text. So one of the questions that you could ask of this text is, how exactly did Jesus welcome me? Like at that moment when I came to faith in Christ, when he met me at the door and welcomed me into his family, what what kind of person was I? This is a little easier if you came to Christ in your adult years as opposed to, you know, if you were a young child and came to Christ. I'm not diminishing that at all. That's really Cheryl's testimony in every way. I came to Christ in my mid-teen years. We were still kind of grinding it out as a family. We're all kind of finding Christ at the same time. Many of you have come to Christ in your adult years, and so this just seems a little more plain to you. But how did Jesus welcome you? He welcomed you. You were broken. For many of you, you were a mess. 
definitely sinners, and you had to come and confess that to him. You came to the end of yourself. Many of you came pretty needy. Many of you came pretty hopeless, empty, tired, confused, wandering, lost. You, you came to Jesus wrong about a lot of things. That's the way you came to Jesus. Now, Romans 15 says, welcome one another as, as Christ welcomed you. So whoever comes through the door, whoever is in our lives, we're going to welcome them into our lives the way that Jesus welcomed them. We're going to welcome them into our church, broken, hurting, sinner, at the end of themselves, needy, hopeless, empty, tired, confused, wandering, lost. We're going to welcome them into our church wrong about a lot of things. Because that's the way Jesus welcomed us. We need to stay humble about this as we restore one another. I said we'd come back to Galatians 6 too. Notice that phrase that we kind of passed over quickly. Keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. We just know we're all right there. We're right on the edge of temptation and sin every minute of every day. And all of those sin issues we established early on, all of those sin issues took Jesus to the cross. All of them required the blood of Christ. All of them at one time kept us separated from God. So it's all of us. Remember, you need that place of redemptive grace too. C.S. Lewis, he's the man, right? On quotes. There's someone that I love, even though I don't approve of what he does. There's someone I accept, though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There's someone I forgive, though he hurts the people I love the most. That person is? It's me. I need that place too. You've heard me say it before. Christian life is a marathon. It's an endurance race. Nobody breaks the tape with a lot of energy at the end of that race. You just kind of make it to the end. There's a lot of stumbling and falling and crawling along and I fell down and I picked myself back up. And really as the church of Jesus Christ, we ought to just be helping each other get to the finish line. Amen? We're just helping each other get to the finish line. All right, we're going we're gonna to do everything we can to build this place of grace. We're going to remember we need that place too. And then finally this, we're going to do all we can to preserve that place because you know what? The evil one wants to destroy it. Okay. He wants to take down what we're building here. And we need to be tenacious about protecting it. What we have is so awesome that we want to work hard to keep what we have in uncommon community. The radical love of Jesus Christ finds its fullest expression in his followers when they live out the truth in ways that people say are impossible. And people will tell us that we're attempting, what we're attempting to do here is impossible. You can't hold the truth. You can't say that same-sex sexual activity is sin and be welcoming. Seems impossible, but not impossible to God. I got a, we have one of those super mailboxes. 
so, but we also have a mailbox on our house. When, I, when we bought our house eight, eight years ago, I installed a mailbox. I don't know why. I check it twice a year. Usually when there's so much dust on the top of it that I'm cleaning it, so I just look inside and find. Um, I found a letter in there that was evidently put into that box four weeks ago, before this series started. It's anonymous. Usually pastors don't like anonymous letters. Some of you get that. They're usually not very good. This one's phenomenal. I want to read you portions of it, not all of it. This is from a person in our church family. He's been active in our church for many years. And um, I picked, uh, again, I got this just a few days ago. So I don't know who the person is. Anonymous. Uh, They write, I've struggled with same-sex attraction and activity in many ways and for a long time. Once I became a Christian and got married, I thought that stuff would naturally die in me. I never received help, nor did I seek help. The issues never really went away. In fact, it got worse. I was tormented by thoughts and urges. I felt so much shame, and I was terrified to speak to anyone in church because of what I heard from friends, acquaintances, and the general attitude of Christians, in quotes. I encountered throughout my life, lived in the church and out of the church. Eventually, my activities were found out. It seemed obvious to me that my marriage was over, my life was over, and I was ruined. But God had different plans. A couple involved in biblical soul care came beside us, and even after finding out how depraved and disgusting I was, they hugged me. I'd never seen such love. Another couple from Harvest came to our side to be our advocates and loved us more. Nothing I could say or tell them or confess to them would turn their eyes or stop their hugs and prayers. God shone through them. His love was made perfect through these people. They worked with us to renew our marriage and show us, mostly me, that my sin is not who I am. I am God's child. My sin is no power and I'm not the only one who has been where I was. Also that them loving me was the least they could do for God because of what he had done for them. Our marriage has come a long way and we have had our share and then some of struggles and trials. But I have not cheated or had any improper physical contact with anyone. Every day is a victory. I continue to have sin issues that revolve strongly around sex, but God has given me many victories. And when I look around my life and see my amazing spouse still by my side, my children growing and loving Jesus and how sin has lost its grip on my life, I'm thankful for Jesus his love and grace, and that God delights in me, his child. I pray that God's unconditional love will flow through our church and his people and allow those struggling with these issues to have the confidence to come forward and repent and start to live a life free of lies and shame. And I pray that those who have hate of homosexuality and those who struggle with it to be transformed and convicted to love and have grace. I'm so blessed by that. To know that you have cared so well for this person in creating a place of redemptive grace. First Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Paul writes to the Thessalonians church. This is a great letter 
Thessalonians because it's so comforting and the church was getting so many things right, even though they were facing some pretty big challenges. He said, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And I really feel that here, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. I, I feel like that's here too. But we urge you, brothers, and I would urge you, church, do this more and more. Love begets love. Peter wrote it this way, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. For love covers a multitude of sins. Amen? Pastor Roger, why don't you come on up here? We're going to do some Q&A. With the time we don't have left. Great. Well, thank you again for uh, a great message. And uh, just so clear that uh, God has shown us such grace. Um, That's really what we need to live out of, right? Right. So I thought we'd change things up this morning, Roger. I I feel like I've been doing all the heavy lifting for four weeks. So um, why don't I ask the questions and you answer them? I can think of a really good reason why that's not a good idea. How many people think Roger should answer the questions? (laughs) Okay, well, we really don't do voting anyway, so... um, So there's a really good so, reason why this is a bad idea. This is a great idea. I love this. Um, now, I want to say this, too, before before I ask Roger the questions. Um, I, I want to say that we don't have the opportunity and haven't had the opportunity to address every question that's out there. And largely because some of these things require some finesse and knowing particulars of certain situations. And in, in the actual application of many of these truths, we need to sit down with the family or with the individual and say, how is this going to play out for you? And so we, we didn't want to come and give any cookie cutter solutions to some of these more difficult questions, but we want to create an environment where you can come personally and ask mm-hmm. those. Does that seem fair? So Roger, let's start with this. Some people have heard of this thing called reparative therapy, and some people might not even know what that is, but it's kind of fallen by the way, and there's a lot of people upset with that. Um, Would we support reparative therapy, I think is the question. Okay, well, let me first define what it is. Reparative uh, has the idea of repairing something, obviously. And uh, the idea behind this is that uh, in... Uh, homosexuality actually grows out of early shame caused by a loss of parental attachment. Uh, nothing like loading a, putting a load of guilt on the parents, right? Uh, what a great idea that is. Uh, not so much. We actually, it seems like we would support it. Like who doesn't want to be repaired and brokenness made whole? And, uh, and, and isn't heterosexuality our goal? Because that's the goal of reparative therapy. But in actual fact, we don't support it. There's a, mainly, the main reason why is because it's actually trying to fix the wrong problem. And uh, we just don't believe that all homosexuality uh, is a result of that particular thing. Uh, There seems to be some uh, level of involvement with parents. Um, But there's so much about uh, homosexuality that isn't explained by that. And so it's it's not enough of an answer. Uh, That's one of the the main things. One of the things is it's uh, it has such a very narrow focus. It says nothing about sin our sinfulness, which we've talked about. Uh, So much of this comes from our brokenness. And yet it doesn't really talk about that. Uh, It has the wrong goal. 
Uh, let, me, let me say, you may be surprised about this, but uh, I think we've said it here. Our goal is not heterosexuality. That's not our goal. Our goal is sexual purity, uh, living before the Lord. Um, and so we want to put to death uh, any uh, sinful desire that leads us to a place that isn't honoring to God. And so our goal is biblical uh, sexual purity. Um, that can happen in the context of a chaste Christian commitment to celibacy, or it can happen in the context of a heterosexual Christian marriage. Uh, but we've said that's the only two options as believers committed to Jesus Christ and his word. Uh, that's where we live out our biblical purity. So uh, finally, it, it, the whole process of fixing it is like you get together with a therapist and they'll reparent you. And, and uh, it says nothing about repentance and faith. And those are the things that bring transformation to me is when I, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm transformed by God himself uh, to, uh, to, to be transformed in my heart. And so that my di- desires are actually transformed by Christ. And, and some, sometimes God transforms those desires. And, and Pastor Todd mentioned one of our pastors who uh, now is married and has desires for his wife. And that's great. Uh, it doesn't happen that way for everyone. Others, lifelong struggle. But what is our commitment to? Our commitment is to Jesus Christ and honoring him with my, bringing my, my sexual desires into, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? Right. All right. How should Christian parents interact with their gay son or daughter's partner, significant other? For instance, should they go to a wedding? Uh, Should they invite them over for family meals, for special events, make them part of the family? Should they allow them to sleep in the same room when they come and stay the night? Wow. (laughs) I think um, this would be a good question for That's why we flipped that this week, see? This is this is where uh, it gets very difficult to say oh, this is the answer. Um, there isn't one answer. It depends. There's there's a lot of things that go into this. So um, this is really where it happens, though, right? Uh, at home uh, with our family. And so these are important questions. Uh, the answers are not easy or popular. And here's the important thing: not always the same for each one of us. So uh, let me say this: we probably need to acknowledge that our gay children and friends often choose to respect us by not putting us in these hard places. They have been often more gracious than we have mm-hmm. been. And so we need to acknowledge that. Uh, that said, I think that we really need to think through uh, where we're going to draw the lines. And we do need to draw lines respectfully, uh, but then we need to firmly stick to them. So always affirm your love for the person. Always say, I love you. But uh, different ones of us will have different tolerance levels. Some will be able to welcome their their child and their friend into their home. All right? But your home, your rules. And so I think that it's appropriate to say, um, uh, no, you're not sleeping together. Um, Not in the same room. We have friends and uh, their son has been living with his girlfriend for many years. And every time they come over, um, they know. We're not sleeping together at mom and dad's house. Uh, and that's an appropriate level. They know they love him and uh, they know they love uh, his partner. But, uh, and so I think we just need to expand that to same sex partners. But you may not have that tolerance. You may say no. And so maybe the thing is, honey, I love you. And uh, we long to have you home for Christmas. And, and just you are welcome to join us. That's not an easy thing to say. But you need to decide where your lines are. And you need to stick to them firmly. 
respectfully, lovingly, and because it's mutual respect, right? Uh, we, we need to sometimes draw that line and be firm about it because we're trying to honor the Lord. Uh, you know, the going to a wedding thing, that's a very difficult one. Um, you know, when you go to a wedding, uh, some people believe that just by attending, you're affirming all the things that they're saying there. And so uh, can you affirm those things about a, a gay marriage? Really? Can you? Um, now, some don't feel that they're, they're affirming those things when they attend. And so we're going to make, again, different decisions. And so what we need to do is, uh, you know, so often, I heard one person say, so often you have to say no, so say yes as much as you can. And so let's just say this, uh, where you can love graciously and with abandon so that when you cannot uh, go through, uh, attend something, uh, the accusation that you're unloving and intolerant will ring very hollow because you have proven that you love these people. And, and then we need grace for one another when we make different decisions because sometimes we're the ones that we beat up the most over our decisions. And we just need to realize these are not easy things for any of us. And so uh, let's be gracious with each other. Yeah. All right, let's take it out of the immediate family, the struggles of those decisions to this family. So... Um, what we should do? What should we do if a gay couple comes to church, or a gay individual comes to church and wants to be part of Harvest? Okay, you are welcome here. We're so glad that you're here. So let, let's be clear: like uh, you know, different levels of responsibility and leadership are given to those who are committed to the things that we're committed to. But uh, everyone is welcome here, and we have lots of people who have not even made a commitment to Jesus Christ. There's places that they can serve here, and and we're. We welcome that. We're committed to that. Come in and be a part of it. We encourage people to come and uh, hear God's word. We encourage them to get involved in a small group and learn how to live it out. And we've had lots of people that came here and are very broken. And uh, sometimes it takes a, a, a bit of a lot of effort and some time to get my life aligned with who Jesus Christ is. Hmm. Right? And so we have lots of people coming in and everyone's welcome. We're so glad you're here. And we want to help you get your life aligned with Jesus Christ. And because of the variety of places we live and the tangled knots we've got our lives in, sometimes getting aligned with who Jesus is and what he wants for us is more difficult. But we are working with a lot of people, and I just want to tell you, thank you again for loving people and helping. And we're getting... Uh, I'm still getting my life lined up with Jesus. And we're in this together. We're getting our lives lined up with Jesus. I'm so thankful. And sometimes that's hard. And sometimes we get into things. And sometimes the answers, I don't know how to get from there to here, lined up with Jesus. But we're going to find out how that is together. And we welcome everyone. And so it's hard. And uh, we're, it's a challenge. But uh, that's what we're working. You know what? It's not always easy. But let's remember... Uh, me helping you get lined up with Jesus is a lot shorter distance than what it took for God to send his son so that I could be lined up with him.